You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Tracking a group that's after the software supply chain, Israel adds airstrikes to the array of responses it's prepared to make to hackers, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission still doesn't know how you solve a problem like Mark, some more notes from last week's Global Cyber Innovation Summit, Sophos has more details on Megacortex, a new strain of ransomware, and criminal organizations organize and operate a lot like legitimate businesses. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, May 6, 2019. Researchers at a number of firms, including Kaspersky, ESET, Avast, CrowdStrike, and Alphabet's Chronicle Security Unit, are tracking an increasingly aggressive and capable Chinese gang that's been hitting software supply chains. It's a bit unclear whether it's actually a gang or a unit controlled by Chinese intelligence and security organs. Variously called Barium, Shadowhammer, Shadowpad, or Wicked Panda, the group has, over the last few months, afflicted Piriform's backup tool CCleaner, apparently en route to its ultimate target, computer manufacturer Asus, NetSarang's enterprise remote management tool, and various online games. The goal appears to be espionage, and so speculation about attribution is trending toward a state actor especially as evidence of interest in credential theft seems a Johnny-come-lately and perhaps a bit of 11th-hour misdirection. But focusing on the software supply chain in this way is troubling, and security researchers are pointing out that NotPetya started as a supply chain attack, too. The Jerusalem Post says a joint Shinbet IDF operation prevented a Hamas cyber attack, with an air attack on the Gaza headquarters of Hamas cyber operations. Forbes calls it a significant first, kinetic retaliation for a cyber attack, or perhaps kinetic preemption of an imminent cyber attack. The nature of the prospective cyber attack isn't clear. In the past, Hamas has shown mid-grade capability, some defacement and denial of service, and somewhat more sophisticated social engineering aimed at gaining access to information that could be developed into intelligence. An IDF spokesman is quoted in the Times of Israel to the effect that, quote, Hamas no longer has cyber capabilities after our strike, end quote. Shin Bet is said to have in some fashion neutralized the Hamas cyber capability 
after which IDF aircraft destroyed the building that housed the operations. But the operational reality is both more complex and more conventional. Israel and the Palestinian Sunni Islamist militia have been engaged in active combat for the better part of a week, with Hamas firing an estimated 600 rockets into Israel and Israel responding with hundreds of airstrikes. It would probably be more accurate to regard Hamas cyber headquarters as one target in a larger air campaign, and the combat itself as another round in a war that's long had a cyber dimension. Cyber units will appear on target lists as other electronic warfare units have for decades. So to see the airstrike as exclusively a response to a cyber threat is a stretch. It was one strike in an extensive campaign. Nor is it the first, as ZDNet hints, at least not internationally. The U.S. killed ISIS hackers with a drone strike in 2015, as defense systems observed in contemporary accounts of American action against the caliphate. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission's enforcement action against Facebook remains up in the air. It's likely to be severe, but the New York Times reports that the form such severity will take, especially the nature of the penalties, if any, to be directed against CEO Zuckerberg himself, are believed to remain the subject of partisan disagreement within the commission. There's bipartisan skepticism of big tech, but disagreement over details. Late last week, an anonymous electric utility filed an electric disturbance report to the Department of Energy, indicating that some sort of cyber event had taken place. Blake Subcheck is a reporter at E&E News, and he's been leading the coverage of the story. It's still a little bit hazy because we don't actually know the utility who initially filed this form. Obviously, that information is available to the Department of Energy and to other federal officials. But what uh, DOE did share, what the Department of Energy did share, was that a denial-of-service condition was involved. And in fact, they also mentioned that it was uh, not only any denial-of-service, but a denial-of-service that exploited a particular vulnerability. And they said that there was a patch already available for this vulnerability, and so the utility in question was able to apply that patch and get back up on its feet fairly quickly. Uh, They also were uh, very careful to say that no power outages were involved, no actual disruption to to power generation uh, happened as a result of this cyber incident. So things uh, function the way that they were supposed to in in case of an event like this, I suppose. That's right. And and the best that I was kind of able to glean in, in, in terms of details surrounding this uh, was that a, a particular type of, of uh, Cisco adaptive security appliance uh, product was involved. Now, uh, Cisco declined comment on this. They, they said that they weren't aware of any reports, but of course, they're in- incredibly widely used, uh, both network security devices and just routers. So uh, my understanding is that there was uh, some sort of denial of service condition instigated in these devices, uh, likely positioned at the edge of some transmission network, uh, based on the geographic footprint that we know. And this would have uh, triggered the, the, the filing with DOE. It would have been enough, basically, to for the utility to say, oh, we're having trouble accessing these devices or, or, or peering into our own networks, so we're going to have to you know, tip off regulators that something's wrong here. And, and when they did actually dig in, they, they discovered that some remote hacker or hackers had, uh, you know, again, exploited this vulnerability, uh, triggered a, essentially a, an equipment outage, but again, no actual blackouts associated with that. It sounds like the transmission grid and, and the, the power grid in that entire region was up and running when this happened on March 5th, and, and there were no service interruptions. Hmm. 
Can you take us through how the Department of Energy uh, categorizes things as a cyber attack, some, some of the nuances there? I understand there's a wide range of things that could fall into that category. Is that accurate? That's correct. And this was uh, part of the tricky nature of this story was, at least at first, there was a lot of fog of war around, okay, was this really a malicious hacking episode or was this something perhaps more benign or even even a uh, mistaken filing, which happens from time to time. And, you know, the utility says something and then later discovers, well, actually, maybe that wasn't a cyber event. And there's no requirement that a cyber event actually be malicious in nature or that it even has to come from remote hackers. So, for instance, the first time that I actually noticed a utility file one of these uh, and classify it as an actual cyber event, what ended up happening, this was uh, something that affected consumers energy in, in Michigan in the beginning of 2018, and it was a an employee who had been undergoing training and inadvertently got some escalated privileges on that particular uh, training system and, and basically triggered a blackout for about 15,000 people. And that was classified as a cyber event because it had this element of unauthorized access. The employee wasn't supposed to get to that system. And it, you know, had a real actual grid disruption tied to it. Where do you expect this to go from here? Uh, how will, do you expect more information to, to trickle out? Will there be clarity over the next days, weeks, months? I do expect more information to come forward uh, at some point. I, I, I filed for a, a Freedom of Information Act request as soon as I saw the cyber event listed. And sometimes uh, the Department of Energy does opt to redact some portions of these OE417 filings because uh, they consider it to be sensitive, uh, critical electric infrastructure information that, that shouldn't get out to the public. And I, I understand that. You know, the utility here is, is certainly concerned that uh, maybe if the general public knew that this particular vulnerability was able to be exploited somewhat recently, that that could invite future hackers or future interest from hackers. And so, you know, I, I definitely sympathize with the position of the federal government and, and certainly the utility industry that maybe it's best to keep a tight lid on some of the information surrounding these events. But on the other hand, I do think that with some of the lack of clarity surrounding, you know, precisely what happened and how such a wide geographic array of networks were apparently impacted, I, I do think that uh, certainly the public deserves to know a little bit more about exactly what played out here. Certainly the North American Electric Reliability Corporation as the main grid monitor and, and enforcer of cybersecurity rules, I have to imagine that they're going to be taking a very close look at this. And in fact, the uh, Department of Energy disclosure that this utility in question didn't patch this vulnerability that was available for apparently quite a long time, uh, that's the sort of thing that could invite regulatory scrutiny from the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. So hmm. I expect perhaps we haven't heard the last from them. And you know, it wouldn't be hard to imagine uh, regulators there pursuing some sort of fine or enforcement action against this utility if they if it did emerge that you know this uh, vulnerability in some presumably pretty critical grid software uh, just went unpatched for a long time. That's Blake Subchak. He's a reporter at E and E News. We'll continue to share some notes and observations on the Global Cyber Innovation Summit held last Wednesday and Thursday in Baltimore. The symposium offered an overview of current and emerging threats and of the technology trends that both expose enterprises to such threats and offer the prospect of enhanced defenses. Estonia's ambassador-at-large for cybersecurity, Heli Tirma-Klar, shared her country's experience as not only one of the most thoroughly digitized societies in the world, but as the victim of what's come to be generally regarded as the first cyber war, 
Russia's 2007 attacks against the networks of the Baltic Republic. She characterized it as the, quote, first politically motivated cyber campaign in history, end quote, and drew the lesson that good public-private partnership and solid expertise can work to build a society resilient enough to withstand even attacks by a highly capable cyber power. Not all threats are the proximate work of a nation-state. During a panel discussion on the conference's first day, Carbon Black's Mike Viscuso emphasized the sheer size of the criminal underground at work in cyberspace. The underground cyber economy is now larger, he emphasized, than the illicit drug trade. In fact, it's now a better-than-trillion-dollar industry. He thinks that as defenses get better, and they have been getting better, the criminals will cease playing the long game because the long game will no longer pay off. They'll increasingly turn to smash-and-grab attacks. He compared the criminals to a caged lion. They're confined and increasingly hungry, and they won't be patient. The CyberWire will have further coverage of the summit later this week. Security firm Sophos has released a report on Megacortex, a new strain of ransomware it found last week. It doesn't appear to be spread by spam, but Sophos thinks it may well be spread by Trojans that themselves arrive by email, so the usual caution about emails and backups are in order. So far, it's not known whether the hoods are honoring ransom payments. Sophos says customers in the United States, Italy, Canada, France, the Netherlands, and Ireland have reported incidents. The criminals have the brass to suggest that they'll throw in some security consultation if the victims pay the ransom. As they put it, quote, The software's price will include a guarantee that your company will never be inconvenienced by us. You will also receive a consultation on how to improve your company's cybersecurity. This sweetening of the pot to deliver best value to the victim is another sorry instance of criminal enterprise aping legitimate ones. As researchers at IBM point out, they compete for talent, they sometimes cooperate with one another. Since almost any business will need a subcontractor at some point, they have CEOs, those CEOs hire program managers, they have goals, and they work regular hours, taking weekends off. That last point makes them sound more like large, stable firms than like scrappy startups. Anywho, to return to Megacortex, researchers seeking to explain the ransom note point out that it's likely an homage to the name of the corporation Neo worked for in the film The Matrix. Sofo suggests the ransom note reads like something voiced by Morpheus, to which we say, What if I told you everything you've securely backed up can be restored? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He is from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, welcome back. Hi, Dave. Uh, Interesting news uh, came from Dell about uh, some patches that they have uh, sent out recently. Uh, Bring us up to date here. What's going on? So Dell has a product that they install on almost all their machines called the Support Assist Client. Okay. Right? And you may see this frequently. It comes up and says... Uh, hi, I'm the support assist client. Let me run a scan on your computer. Let me make sure. And it is a legitimate product from Dell. Right. But there is a young researcher, and by young, I mean this guy is 17 years old, hmm. named Bill Demircopy. And I hope I'm saying his last name correctly. <laughs> right. I'm probably butchering it, but I'm just going to call him Bill from now on. Okay. But he found a remote code execution. Using social engineering, you can trick somebody into running code that they shouldn't run. Hmm. Now, and, let's just back up but just for... A real basic explanation, what's remote code execution? So basically, remote code execution means I can, as an attacker, can run whatever I want on your machine. From somewhere else. From somewhere else. And it's a really bad vulnerability. Right. (laughs) Dell ships this product with the idea of helping their customers. And and it probably does provide some real benefit to to the customer, but we as customers of Dell and even Dell themselves have to realize that this increases your attack surface. All these pre-installed applications and bloatware that you get from these computer manufacturers and increases the vulnerability surface of your computer when you get it out of the box. Yeah. The support assist client, I mean, one of the things it was supposed to be keeping tabs on was security. Correct. It was supposed to be keeping an uh, update on security. Yeah. And in, it, it in itself is insecure. Well, it's software, right? Yeah. So it can have vulnerabilities in it just, just, as, just as well. Mm. I want to talk about something with Bill. Bill is, is a sharp young man. He's going to Rochester Institute of Technology next year, which is a good school. Mm-hmm. And Bill has done a bang-up job here. Mm. All right, And he has done this exactly right. The first thing he did, he discovered this vulnerability back in, in October. He has a timeline on his webpage where he shares the write-up about the, about the vulnerability. Okay, And it takes Dell about a month to confirm the vulnerability. Mm. Right, Then it takes Dell about to the end of April... To, to finally patch the vulnerability. Okay. And, and Bill did not discuss the vulnerability. He kept kept the vulnerability uh, confidential until Dell had fixed it, which is great. So thank you, Bill, for your work. It's great. And uh, we assume that he had had some back and forth with Dell correct. about this. I'm, I'm sure that that went on. Yeah. I would like to say to Dell that five months is kind of a long time to let this vulnerability linger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, fact that, the fact that Bill found it and, and notified you of it is is great, and you guys are lucky that happened, but you don't know who else has found this vulnerability and not disclosed it to you. Mm-hmm. And that means that that if uh, there's a good chance that somebody else out there had it, they had it for five months, they really didn't need to have it. Hmm. I think this vulnerability should have been fixed a lot faster than five months. 
Yeah. Well, and I, and I wonder you know, what's going on behind the scenes. I wonder, how, what, was there any way that Dell could establish how often this was being used, if at all, out in the wild, if there was any mechanism That's for that? That's a good that? point. Yeah. Uh, and another another good point that, that counters my argument about this taking so long is that Dell has a, a pretty big configuration management issue with this with this product. They have to they have to push it out and make sure it works on all the devices that they're going to uh, deploy it to, right? Right. So there right. there is a, there is a big issue, and all these devices are different. They have they have hundreds of model numbers. Some of these machines are are years old. How do you know if your fix is going to you know make it so that these things don't work anymore? It's a difficult problem for Dell to have. Yeah. So maybe I'm being harsh on Dell. <laughs> I don't know. That's okay. I still think five months is a long time though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and so I guess the bottom line here is that if you are running a Dell system, right, uh, go in and check to see what version of this support assist client you're running. Right. Make, make sure, sure you have you the latest. That. Yeah. Make sure you have the latest one. Right. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. 
SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 